I'm going to ask you in a couple of moments to think of some, some favorite uh, Christmas traditions, so kind of just prime your mind to be thinking about that. Um, the series is kind of great expectations. Uh, one of my great expectations, one of the things that, that I looked forward to uh, as a kid growing up uh, about Christmas, our favorite Christmas movie was uh, The Muppet Christmas Carol. That's how I was introduced to um, The Christmas Carol. And so years later, uh, I was watching another version of The Christmas Carol, and um, much to my uh, enjoyment, they were using the same lines as the Muppets used. And I finally figured out that there were probably Dickens' lines that the Muppets were using. Um, although I don't know that the Dickens had um, Bob Marley uh, incorporated into uh, his, his telling of uh, Christmas Carol. That was one of my favorite Christmas movies. Uh, what are some of your favorite Christmas movies? It's a Wonderful Life. Charlie Brown. The Grinch. And, and, and then I have to ask which version? What? Jim Carrey. All right. Rudolph. Miracle on 34th and White Christmas. Polar Express. Polar Express. Jameson left. He would, uh, that's one of his favorites. David Jeremiah. All right. All right. Some new ones. The Chosen Christmas. The Chosen Christmas. I, I was... <laughs> If you weren't, if somebody else wasn't going to say it, I was going to say it. Elf, yeah. All right. Now, and I realize this is like uh, you know potentially opening up uh, you know Pandora's box kind of thing. Um, briefly, and I'll underline briefly. Favorite church Christmas tradition. It can be an Advent or a Christmas Eve tradition. It could be past something that you did in the past, or it could be something that you currently do. Favorite church Christmas tradition? Christmas Eve service. And, all right, lighting the candles and singing Silent Night. Christmas Family Night caroling. Bible school. Youth lock in. Okay. I'm so glad that that's a favorite memory for for you, Michelle. In youth ministry, I can't say lock-ins were my... (laughs) They created lots of memories. I will say that. They created lots of memories. All right. Now, I want you to just kind of think to yourself about what kind of emotional response you're starting to have in thinking about some of these cherished traditions around Christmas. Just think about the, the, the emotions, the memories, the things that that's bringing up for you. Uplifted. Uplifted.
Yeah. Warm, sentimental, you know, those kinds of things is how I start to feel. All right, now we turn to our passage. Uh, John the Baptist is not necessarily someone we associate with Christmas. Maybe, um, you know, if we're reading the story out of Luke, um, we're introduced to um, John in utero while, uh, when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth hears Mary's coming and the, the child leaps for joy while, while he's in the womb. And so that might be our introduction to John the Baptist. Um, but maybe not John the Baptist as an adult do we associate with Advent. In fact, uh, here's a John the Baptist Advent card that got rejected by Hallmark. It says, Happy Advent, you brood of vipers. You know, when we read this passage, I don't get the warm, fuzzy feeling uh, from John the Baptist that I do when I start thinking of favorite Christmas movies or, or favorite Christmas traditions. John comes on to the scene in advance of Jesus, paving the way for the Messiah. And uh, John, in like every way, is very rough around the edges in, in what he's wearing, in what he's eating. It's a little weird. Um, in, his, in his message... And yet, uh, there is something about preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for the King, and this season of Advent is a time of preparation for us as the church, and so I think John has a, a very meaningful message for us. And as we look at this passage, would you pray with me? Jesus, may the words of my mouth the meditation of our hearts, our preparation for your coming, for the celebration of you coming the first time, for our preparing for you coming again. May this be pleasing to you, Lord. And would you speak to us in these moments? In Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist is a bit of an interesting character. Uh, according to Luke, John is like a second cousin, something like that, to Jesus. We know he's a, a relative. We get the miraculous story of John's father, Zechariah, being told about John's birth, which uh, Zechariah at the beginning does not believe. And, and the, when the angel comes and, and tells him that you know this, this old man and this old woman are going to have a child, uh, Zechariah is a little bit taken aback by that. Um, and he is... You know, it's kind of silenced for uh, the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy. We get the story of Mary visiting Elizabeth after Mary gets her own message from the angel about her bearing a son. We don't know a lot about John's background. We do know that the people, uh, when, when John launches his, his public ministry that uh, people generally responded well and held John in reverence. Um, despite being out in, in the wilderness, people responded to John. People went out to see him. Uh, they held him as a prophet. 
um, later in, in the story, the Pharisees are afraid to, uh, not in this story, in, later in, in the story of Jesus, the Pharisees are uh, afraid to disparage John because of what the people believed about John. They held him as a prophet, and, and so they're afraid to say anything negative about John because of how the people might react. We're told that John wore camel's hair and a leather belt, um, which sounds very strange, but these were connections back to the prophet Elijah. In fact, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, Elijah shows up at the king's door, and the king wants to know who's at the door, and the guards simply say, it's a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist, and basically the king responds, oh, you mean Elijah. So just those simple uh, descriptors were enough to conjure up the, the, the memory of Elijah. And so when John is going around, uh, camel's hair, leather belt wrapped around his waist, everybody looked at him and said, Elijah, Elijah. I remember reading this story as a kid. I remember hearing this. This is what Elijah wore. John eats locusts and honey. It's a, an ascetic lifestyle. He's depriving himself uh, of better food. But locusts were one of the few insects that weren't unclean for Jews to eat. Locusts had also been, uh, had represented death and plague. They, they weren't a good thing. When you had a swarm of locusts visit your field, it wasn't a good thing. It was death. It was, it was the devourer. And so in a very symbolic way, John is devouring the devourer, all right? And so that's one of the reasons he picks that um, particular course uh, to, to fill his, his uh, stomach with. John's kind of persona, his, his dress, his um, diet are all part of a prophetic theater. It's continuing the, the Old Testament tradition of prophets that, that often did strange things to announce their way, to get people's attention in a different way. Um, Elijah did this, uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they all do strange things that people are like, what on earth is going on? And it perks up people's attention, they take notice, uh, they, they listen to what these prophets have to say, and uh, John the Baptist come and is doing the same thing. He's putting on that camel's hair and that leather belt and people are going, I remember Elijah doing this and he's eating this weird food and he's like, oh man, we're back to these Old Testament prophet guys. We better sit up and pay attention to what this guy has to say. Matthew, in fact, makes some explicit reference to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, naming John as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The description of John also touches on images from Exodus 23, 20, where an angel is leading the way towards salvation. And it connects to a description of Malachi chapter 3. And so what Matthew is doing in his description of John the Baptist, is reaching back across the, the biblical narrative and, and reminding the people of how God is continuing to work out God's plan. Matthew wants to, to, to hear what, what John was wearing and, and remember Elijah and wants you to remember Exodus and remember Malachi and see how God is continuing to move and continuing to unfold his plan. And now John the Baptist is a part of that. 
John's ministry is a little bit different, a little bit unique. John goes out into the wilderness away from the centers of political and religious power in Jerusalem. He doesn't focus his, his message uh, for the temple in Jerusalem. He goes out to the wilderness. The wilderness was where God really formed a people giving the Torah to Moses and establishing the tabernacle. In the wilderness was a time before kings. It was before, you know, we, Israel got bogged down in, in, in establishing this, this, this kingdom and, and having these kings kind of lead it off course. This was the time where God went tent camping with his people. John's ministry is actually a critique of the systems, including the temple. So it's interesting then that the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to see John. The text makes it a little unclear whether they are coming to actually be baptized or just to see what's going on. They've heard about this John the Baptist. They've heard about this prophet-like person out in the wilderness, and they're coming to check it out, do their due diligence. Pharisees and Sadducees didn't often get along, except when they come to condemn prophets. Pharisees were a, a progressive group trying to find new ways of applying the Torah. They added in new oral traditions to the Old Testament written Torah. On the other side, the Sadducees were largely an aristocratic group that had wealth and power. They controlled the temple system and typically were, were leery of anything that might disrupt the status quo and might disrupt their power. John doesn't fit into either of these camps very well. Jesus isn't going to fit into either of those camps very well. And so it's interesting that they come together here. Pharisees would have liked that John seems to be something of a reformer. Maybe the Sadducees would also like to co-opt John and his audience. And of course, John doesn't take this moment to welcome in the Pharisees and Sadducees into his collective. He's not real excited that they're there. Doesn't extend a, a very... Uh, uh, hospitable response. Instead, he offers a harsh rebuke and criticizes their belief that because of genealogy, they're good with God. Instead, look at John's message. His message begins this, this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or some translations say that his kingdom is at hand which is really about being transformed. It's a message of being transformed. One commentator says this, For Christians, repentance is not a religious moment or experience in which we come to God, but then continue to live within the social narratives and structures that constitute life as usual. Repentance is a perpetual state of readiness to challenge our commonplaces, the myths we live by, which produce not the fruit of repentance, but the practices of alienation and violence we too easily take for granted. Repentance is about aligning ourselves with what God is doing. It's a continual process 
of challenging our thinking, challenging our actions, and aligning ourselves with what God is doing. John will say these folks need to bear fruit worthy of repentance. For the Pharisees and Sadducees, it meant not relying on genealogy to save them. It didn't matter who their father was, who their grandfather was, if they could draw this perfect line back to Abraham. John says that's not going to get it done. That's not going to save you. That's not going to rescue you. That's not going to align you with what God is doing in the world. When Luke tells this story, he adds some additional responses to the question, what does fruit worthy of repentance look like? And in Luke, John says, look, you want an example of fruit? If you have two coats, you should share with a person who has no coat. If you have plenty of food, you should share with someone who doesn't have enough. If you're a tax collector, you should collect no more than required, which I think means to operate your business lives with integrity. He tells others not to extort or use methods of violence to get what you want. In Matthew, uh, the Sermon on the Mount would be a good place to look at what fruit worthy of repentance looks like. I wonder what it means for us. Looking at the John's response to the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for for us it might mean, look, I show up at church, so I'm good. I'm a good person. Or I don't live like that. I don't live like they do, so God will like me. I'm good with God. But what John confronts here in Matthew uh, concerning the Pharisees and the Sadducees isn't just a simple issue of them breaking the Torah. The Pharisees and the Sadducees haven't come, and, and John's not pointing out, well, you broke this ten command, one of the Ten Commandments, you broke number three of the Ten Commandments, you broke number four of the Ten Commandments. He's not confronting them with bearing false witness. He's not confronting them with coveting their neighbor's spouse or taking the Lord's name in vain. Those are all wrong and certainly need to be repented of. But what John confronts with them, what John confronts them with is a narrative and a lie that they have built up like a wall around themselves to protect themselves from others. John says that God can raise children of Abraham from the stones. And so don't rely on this narrative that you've built for yourselves to save you. They, they've, uh, they're kind of protecting themselves from everyone else because they think their genealogy is going to rescue them, is going to restore them, is going to align them with what God's doing. They've constructed this narrative wall around themselves to say, we've got it all together. And we're not sure what's happening to the rest of you. And John is challenging that. What made repentance hard for the Pharisees and the Sadducees? And what might make it difficult? What might make repentance difficult for us? 
Stanley Saunders says, repentance is harder for those more deeply invested in or comfortable with the current order of things, as were the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come to observe John's baptism, and many of us are today. It may be easier and necessary for comfortable people to change when confronted with a great social or personal crisis, which requires us to challenge our prevailing narratives as when today we must face the realities of racism or climate change. Survival lies in critically examining, repenting of, and replacing the narratives that have brought us to crisis. Wisdom entails repenting prior to crisis. Repentance is harder for those more deeply invested in or comfortable with the current order of things. Sometimes we just get so uh, comfortable thinking, you know, everything's great and not challenging ourselves, not looking at what God is doing, not, not facing the realities of the world around us. Repentance might not be an expected response to Christmas. If I had to pick a holiday that I associate repentance with, it'd probably be closer to Easter. But I doubt John the Baptist would have worried too much about trampling on our holiday movies or our festive traditions and holiday sentimentality. I mean, when he says brood of vipers, it doesn't scream warm snuggles with peppermint-flavored cocoa or coffee. John doesn't strike me as a Hallmark movie kind of guy. He doesn't even strike me as one who would be overly concerned with pulling out the, the crasher and the nativity scene. And I don't think there's anything wrong with any of that. Maybe the peppermint coffee. That's kind of weird. Hallmark movies are another sermon altogether. But. John is focused on our response to the Messiah. He is focused on preparing the way, on preparing people to receive what Jesus is going to come and do. He wants people to be prepared for the Messiah to come. He wants to make straight paths. He wants to flatten the mountains that come between people and God. He wants to lift folks out of the valleys and then, and then backfill those valleys in so that people aren't uh, getting caught. So they can come and they can experience and align themselves with what Jesus is doing in the world. And so John wants and expects a response of genuine life repentance, not just a moment. Not just a moment. But to realize that repentance needs to be something that is incorporated into our lives. To say, you know what, I've, I've gotten off track 
I, I, I've, I've stopped aligning myself with what God is doing in the world around me. And I need to, to come back. I need to uh, leave those mountains and those valleys and come back onto this path. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look, the way of repentance is, is a journey. It's not, not just a one-time moment. But wherever you might be on your journey with Jesus, if repentance and confession is something that, that the Spirit is stirring inside of you this morning, whether you have been following Jesus for decades and you find yourself in a place where you realize that repentance and confession is, is something you really need to, to take part in, coming back into alignment with Jesus, or if you've never taken those initial steps to repent and confess and come and, and, and find yourself coming, drawing near to Jesus, as one sinner to another, I'm going to invite you to come and, and I'll pray with you this morning. It can be here during the closing hymn. It can be after the service. It's not something that just happens once. It's something that needs to be incorporated into our lives, into our rhythms. Because we all fall down. We all need to be picked back up. John comes as one to prepare the way, to fill in the, the mountains and the valleys, because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is near. And so our hymn of response this morning is joy to the world. Repentance and joy may not seem like they go together. But I think when we align ourselves with what God is doing, there is great joy. And I believe under all the, um, uh, the hairy camel fur and the, the leather belt and the, the weird diet, I think John had a real joy in knowing that he was preparing the way. That was his initial response, even before he was born, to leap with joy that the Messiah was coming. And even in this message of repentance, I believe there is deep joy in giving that stuff up and finding ourselves in relationship with Jesus. Would you stand and turn in your brown hymnal to number 270, Joy to the World.